Ready? We will begin session 16, and we want to conclude the interlude, and then move into chapter 12. We've been looking at the two witnesses, and I gave you a longer introduction than what I intended to them, so we'll pick up the pace here. And the major issue of this passage is who are these two witnesses, the identity of them. And there are, again, as you find throughout the book of Revelation, varying opinions as to the identity and the interpretation of the passage. There are a lot of views that relate it to the Word of God. There are some commentators that uh, see them as symbolic, and most of them are symbolic as well, symbolic of the law and the prophets. There are some commentators that see the law and the Gospels or the Old Testament and the New Testament pictured in the two witnesses. So relating to the Word, uh, there's different groups that are tied to the two witnesses, Israel and the church, one representing Israel, one representing the church, or the group in terms of Israel and the Word of God would put under that category. At least one Johnson, in his uh, commentary, sees representative of all of the prophets, kind of a group of prophets. Another viewpoint, see different individuals, and there's, again, a variety of who the individuals might be. One view, Jeremiah and Elijah. Another strange one, Peter and Paul. How do you read that? Well, it's a tendency to read the church into all of these. Real popular is Enoch and Elijah. What they both have in common is they didn't experience death. They were both translated without dying. So to complete their death, because they do die in this passage, that's the exegetical detail that they use to support that. There's others that see Elijah and Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. So different views of individuals. Probably the best view, and I think there's lots of exegetical details to indicate that we have Moses and Elijah. Elijah is, in fact, specifically predicted to come back. Malachi, Malachi 3 and 4. Moses experienced unusual death in that no one observed his burial. Plus, he also speaks of a prophet which may be even a prediction concerning himself. I think it's mainly messianic, but it could include him. And as we move through the details, we'll see some other evidence that what we have in view is probably Moses and Elijah coming back. Remember, they didn't experience death, or at least uh, Elijah did not. So I think the best view, and I think there's enough details to conclude that they will return. Now, the imagery, where is it drawn from? It tells us in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. It's probably an allusion to Zechariah 4, verses 11 through 14. We have very clearly a vision that Zechariah saw. And the context is the captives, the Israelite captives are now coming and returning to the land of Israel. Not all of them, but some of them are returning. They begin by building the temple. God intended them to rebuild the temple. So their building of the temple is the context. That 
temple building was interrupted. If you read the the historical narratives uh, behind it, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, that is interrupted. The purpose of these post-exilic prophets, of which Zechariah is one of them, he writes, after the exile, it's predominantly to motivate Israel and particularly the leaders to finish the temple, to continue building it, and not just the temple, but continue building up the, the nation to resettle the land, basically. So that's kind of the background. At that time, Zerubbabel was the governor, so he's the ruling leader of Israel. And I think he, in Zechariah, I think most commentators accept that uh, Zerubbabel is one of the olive trees. So it's an individual that is to lead the rebuilding of Israel. And I think John uses that imagery because the main function of these two witnesses, one of their functions is to rebuild Israel, to reestablish them spiritually in the land. The other is Joshua. He's the high priest. He's going to take primary responsibility in rebuilding the spiritual aspects of Israel. And as mediator between man and God, he will direct worship and encourage worship. Together, they are to complete the building of the temple. All of that is part of what Zechariah is seeing in vision form. And I think the two olive trees in Zechariah 14 are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And John uses them. He says, these are the two olive trees. He's saying, these are the two olive trees that will serve the same function that uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua served in the Old Testament in reestablishing the nation of Israel in the land after the exile. Now, Israel, after 70 A.D., has been in exile. Politically, they're in the land, but spiritually, they're still in exile. They're, They're not redeemed. The prophets, or the two uh, witnesses in chapter 11, are to do the same thing that Zerubbabel and Joshua did in the Old Testament. So they seem to be who they are. The olive trees obviously supply the oil for the lamps. This is a common imagery in the Old Testament. The lampstand represented the burning of the oil, or it's related also to the Holy Spirit. And the olive trees supplied the oil, so the resources to start this revival fire, if you will, that the Holy Spirit will utilize are these two olive trees. So we have these witnesses. So in verse 4, these are the two two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The article probably refers to the olive trees as Zechariah saw in the Old Testament allusion to that. And then it tells us, verse 5, If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. So they, like the 144,000, are going to be protected And it even appears that maybe they are the instruments that God uses to protect themselves. Now, this illusion here adds support to the idea that we may have Elijah. And in fact, we'll come back to that. Uh, Let me keep reading here. Verse 6, these have 
the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Does that sound similar? Or familiar, rather? And to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who does that remind you of? Moses, exactly. And the calling down of fire and shutting the sky. That reminds us of Elijah. I'll refer back to them in a moment. So we are dealing with the tribulation witnesses. Uh, Similar to Joshua and Zerubbabel, they are to spark Israel's restoration. I think that's probably the imagery and the background that John alludes to. Drawing applications here as believers, just as God called individuals, not only prophets, but in this case, in verse 1, John is commissioned to do a task. So also these witnesses are commissioned to do a task. John has certain abilities to fulfill that task. God equipped him with what he needed to uh, fulfill that task. God has given you spiritual gifts. He's equipped you to accomplish what he has intended for you. There's limits. All of us have limits in terms of energy, in terms of capability, in terms of those of you that have families. That's going to put some limits on the things that you uh, are able to take on in terms of a ministry. So also we have limits put on these witnesses. They witnessed for 1,260 days. In other words, they have a limited time. We have limited opportunities. We have limited resources. We are always limited, so keep that in mind. We also have supernatural enablement. And in verse 6, that certainly is supernatural. We may not be able to call fire from heaven, but we have power that is invisible to be able to perform and be effective in the calling that God has called us. So these are applications you can draw, both in verse 3. They have authority, verse 3, and in verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during their prophesying. And they have abilities over the waters as well to turn them to blood. In terms of our timeline break the tribulation into two parts, kicked off by the covenant. The covenant, that is clear. The second one, the two prophets, this is where I put them. Uh, This is a theological conclusion based on some of the data that we have available. And commentators debate that one. The conclusion that follows from chapter 7 is they have effective ministry that touches 144,000, and then they are sent out and they accomplish their task. And there's a conversion of Gentiles and Jews, a great multitude. Those converts are persecuted and most of them die. We've already looked at all of this. And we've looked at the six seals that I think is a panoramic picture of the entire period. And we've also looked at six trumpet judgments. There's one that yet is to come. Keep reading. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, that's their limits, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, that refers to what we saw earlier, chapter 9, will make war with them. Or no, this is the beast. This, This anticipates what we will look at in chapter 12. He's not clearly defined yet, but he's given to us in chapter 11. Remember, this is an interlude. So the beast that comes up out of the abyss, so he's probably associated with that angel or that being that comes out that we identified as Satan, 
will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, if they have a ministry for three and a half years, then when does this have to happen? If they minister in the first three and a half years, then uh, it has to happen at the midpoint. Now, obviously, if it happens in the second half, then they're killed and raised at the second coming. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically or symbolically, here's a clue, here's John saying, okay, I'm using symbolic language. He doesn't do that very often. Here's an example. The commentators often take liberty and make everything, John says, mystical or symbolic. But now John is saying, in the city called Sodom and Egypt. So he's referring to a city, not to specific Sodom or literal Sodom, not to literal Egypt. He's telling us, I'm using figurative language here. I'm using symbolic language. So he's talking about a city that has demonstrated some characteristics that Sodom demonstrated. What did Sodom demonstrate? What was Sodom known for? Sodomy. Immorality. In other words, Sodom is kind of the Old Testament imagery, picture, symbol, in this case, of the most debauched immorality that you can imagine. And this city has some of those characteristics. Egypt had its own characteristics, and John is using it as a symbol. What is Egypt known to in terms of Jewish people? Oppression, bondage captivity. So the city that is in view here has characteristics of oppressiveness, and particularly when it's ruled by Gentiles. So verse 8, their bodies lie in the street of the great city, the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also, now this gives us a clue of what he has in view here, where also their Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? So it kind of explains it. And remember, when John gives us a symbol and he makes it overt, like here or like chapter 1, most of the time he will tell us more information to be able to conclude. So what is he talking about here? Where is that city where the Lord was crucified? Jerusalem. And if you look at the history of Jerusalem, you'll see there's been times of great immorality in the city of Jerusalem. The center of God's dealing with God's people has been also the place where Jewish people have been the most corrupt oftentimes in their history. It has also been an oppressive city, a, a place at least spiritually people were in bondage to idolatry. Maybe not a physical bondage, sometimes physical. So the city has these negative characteristics, and what he has in view is Jerusalem. So this is taking place in Jerusalem. We already talked about the context being the temple and the measuring of the temple. So this is the context of this passage. Verse 9, and those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and the nations will look at the dead bodies for three and a half, what? Days, not years. So I take this three and a half days. The period of time that it would take a human body to begin the decomposition process and odors emanating all of that. So they're left there to basically decay in the street. In Jewish thought, in Old Testament thought, in fact, in that culture, not just Jewish, to not bury a body was the greatest uh, sacrilege that you could put on a person, to not bury them. 
So they're left out there as a great sacrilege against these prophets. They're prophets of God and beast kills them and rather than burying them, just leaves them there to rot. And that's a that's a tremendous sacrilege is the word I'm coming. Disrespect, that's the word I'm looking for. The greatest disrespect that you could put on another person is not only to kill them, but let their bodies to rot in the street. Okay? So that's what happens here. And here, verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, there's the little phrase again, those who dwell on the earth. In other words, these are Gentiles, these are unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. In other words, they didn't like the prophesying as people in general do not. People don't like the message of the prophets because it's a message that calls us to change. It calls us to repent. So they didn't like that message. They didn't want to hear that message. They've rejected the message. And notice they're clearly earth dwellers, clearly unbelievers. So they're celebrating. They're having a great occasion here. And not only that, they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The the word is the same as we saw those uh, demon characters that we saw in the other chapter Same word, but this is a different kind of torment. In other words, we don't want to hear that word. We don't want to hear words of repentance. We don't want to be convicted of sin. And that's that's piercing and that hurts. We don't want to hear that. The interesting thing about verse 10, several years ago I saw a Christmas card using verse 10. (laughs) Speaking of pulling verses out of context. Yeah, Yeah, it had a lot of pretty things on it and... I'm not, and the context nowhere suggests that this was Christmas when this happened, but they're exchanging gifts. Uh, no, I should have, though. <laughs> Stuck it in my. I should have done that. Yep. This is before I knew that you could do that. <laughs> Probably before you were born, actually. But anyway, uh, there's a passage totally out of its context. But the idea of celebrating and rejoicing and exchanging gifts is kind of like Christmas to them. Then verse 11, And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them, those that were observing. In other words, those that uh, were glad and celebrating now are seeing and in wonderment over what took place. So they are raised, and I think we have, if we conclude that they are ministering the first half of this tribulation, then they're raised in the middle. There's going to be some other things that happen significantly there. Should have put this slide before. It's out a little bit out of sequence. But if you go back to verse see, 5 and 6, just to kind of reinforce the conclusion that I came to at least, more than likely, Elijah is one of the two witnesses. Elijah calls fire from heaven and consumes 50 men that come from Ahaziah in Second Kings 1.10 and that context which is similar to what we have here in verse 5. And not only that, but he calls down fire from heaven. Remember, it consumes the altars that the Baal worshippers, you know, they cut themselves and do all of these things to try to call down fire to burn their sacrifices. Nothing happens. 
And then Elijah pours water around it and floods the thing and then calls fire and burns the whole thing up. So he had that ability in the Old Testament. And we have allusion, I think, to that in uh, verse 5. Again, how do we apply this? Supernatural enablement. They have God's protection. Verse 5. God's going to protect them with powers. Verse 6. Elijah in 1 Kings 17.1 also is able to shut up the skies so that it does not rain. So we have similar abilities of these two witnesses, which just gives us more exegetical detail to come to the conclusion. And then verse 6 reminds us of what Moses did in Egypt, bringing plagues. And it does refer to one specific. See, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. That was the first plague. And secondly, to smite the earth with every plague. And there were ten in all, if you remember uh, the Exodus story. And notice, as often as they desire. So this is part of their divine protection. So it reminds us of ministries that already were displayed on perhaps even a more limited basis. Uh, these are probably ministering on a global basis. Probably with the technology we have today, the capability of reaching Jews in the farthest places of the earth. And not only Jews, but apparently unbelievers are hearing their message as well. So we have supernatural enablement. We have God's protection. Uh, we can apply this directly to us. I ride a bike and people are fearful. In fact, I started using a helmet a few several years ago because people just said, you need to do it. <laughs> we don't want to lose you. And I said, well, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Besides, it's a good example for kids. So, <laughs> But my point was, well, until God's finished with me, I'm not going to be run over by a dump truck. And when he's finished with me, then I'm going to be run over by a dump truck. And that helmet's not going to help. <laughs> but I wear one. so We can always expect as God's servants, in fact, probably the more that we serve and to the more public audience that we serve, the more worldly opposition that we will have. And just living your life, if you attempt to live godly, Peter says that you can expect persecution. And that's what these two witnesses experience. Not only opposition, but uh, martyrdom. They are killed. They are abused. They are disrespected. 7 through 10. So we can draw that application. So even though we have a divine commission and we want to obediently respond to what God gives us in terms of opportunities to minister... And he, uh, he wants us to assess our situation such that we manage our time and resources to be most effective, recognizing we have limits, what we can do. And some of that is dependent on the gifts that he's given us. Those will limit us. When I served in a church, and this gets into my ecclesiology, I won't give you a lot of detail on that, but in my ecclesiology, I have a little problem with one pastor trying to accomplish all the tasks of a church. In fact, I think the New Testament pattern is that the body basically does the ministry. The primary gifted leaders are to equip the body. This is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 there. 11 gifted men are raised up, people that have teaching abilities, exhorting abilities, those sort of things, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I was constantly reminding people personally 
of my limits in terms of teaching. I didn't even take the title pastor. I kind of put that away and encouraged others that had that gift because I didn't feel like I had it. So our, our gifts will limit us is the point I'm making. God always gives us all the resources that we need to accomplish the ministry that He's called us to do. He will protect us. And usually the instrument of His protection are the prayers of the saints. So this is where saints also get involved. We can expect opposition. There are many resurrections or stages of resurrection. When we get to chapter 20, it's going to distinguish between a first and a second resurrection. The first resurrection, when we get to Revelation 20, is not in terms of number or sequence. The first in terms of quality, I guess you could say, or in terms of type of resurrection. There's two types of resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. That's what the Bible tells us. In Israel, the first fruits were the first of the harvest. They were to be offered up to God. In other words, during the feast of first fruits, you would harvest it and offer it to God in the temple. And this was to recognize God's sovereignty over your life, that He's going to provide more. In other words, I can give up the first fruits because He's going to give me a harvest after that. So I give it up by faith, trusting in Him. Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. He's described that way from that Jewish background and imagery. The church, we said in the book of Revelation, we don't have a specific reference to the church's resurrection. But we call that resurrection the rapture. And if your ecclesiology is consistent with your eschatology, then it's only the church that is raised at the rapture. We're going to see other resurrections later on. Chapter 20, there's going to be, like I said already, we identified the church's rapture or resurrection as pre-tribulational, consistent with the approach we're taking. And now in the middle of the tribulation, we have another set, at least, of two individuals. That's a mid-trib resurrection. Yes, I am mid-trib. Now spread that rumor. <laughs> I'm even post-trib. <laughs> we will see a post-trib Old Testament and tribulation saints. So I'm all over the board. I'm pre-trib, I'm mid-trib, I'm post-trib when it comes to resurrection. But I'm not all of those when it comes to the resurrection specifically of the church. All right, does that clarify it before you start spreading rumors about me? Doesn't matter, yeah. That won't stop some of you, right? There's also a post... I'm post-mill as well. <laughs> There's a post-mill resurrection of unbelievers. We'll see that in chapter 20 as well. So why don't you spring that one on Clay and tell him, uh, I'm mid-trib. What are you, Clay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, tell him, race pre-trib, he's mid-trib, he's post-trib, he's post-mill. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Please be kind to me and tell him only in reference to resurrection and specific categories. Well, verses 11 and 12, let's read them. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. Then verse 12 and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. So we have resurrection to heaven. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And their enemies beheld them. 
So this kind of pictures the reward of their faithfulness. These martyrs are raised, and all martyrs will be raised. In fact, all believers, all people will be raised. It's just at different stages. And there's a glorious aspect to resurrection, which tells us that there's ultimate reward or an application you can draw. There's always ultimate reward for faithfulness. And all the passages that pertain to rewards, you can use them to support that concept. It's not overtly stated here, but it's a good application you can draw. Then verse 13, And in that hour there was a great earthquake. Here's another earthquake. Now some of the commentators try to tie some of these earthquakes together. They could be separate or they might be tied to some of the others that are referenced. And we'll see more later on. In that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. What city is that? Tenth of Jerusalem. And 7,000 people were killed. This seems to be at the middle of the tribulation, if our placement of the witnesses is correct. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and I take that literally with no reason not to. I don't see any like or as in there. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. That seems to hint that there's probably conversions. In other words... People may have reacted against the message of the prophets, and then as they saw them raised, it gave them maybe confirmation, hey, maybe they're prophets of God and I should have listened, and maybe they respond here. There are some commentators that see a large Jewish contingent uh, trusting in the Lord at this point, at the middle of the tribulation. This is the exegetical data that they would use to support that idea, and it's possible. I don't, I don't think it's clear. I think Jews respond throughout the period and maybe a large number at this point, but I don't think exclusively at the midpoint. So there's verse 13, and notice the second woe is past. Now, the second woe are not these witnesses. The second woe is what? goes back to chapter 9. Remember remember how chapter 9, it didn't identify the woe? Uh, Verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes. After these, verses 13 through 21 is that second woe. So verse 14 refers back to chapter 9. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So verses 15 through 19, this is the third and final woe, which is the seventh trumpet, this last part of chapter 11. We've seen the locusts who seem to be demons. We've seen this 200 million army that comes out of the east crossing the Euphrates. And this third wall is interesting. The third wall seems to not be a judgment at all. In fact, it's it's all positive. Notice, let's read it. The seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven. Again, this, this is real common. Lots of noise in heaven here. Loud voices in heaven. So heaven is not this serene laying on this cloud, little tinkling of a harp and all this. Loud noises, a lot of activity. Seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, instead of judgment, what is it? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, one of the few references to Christos, referring to the anointed one, is right here. 
Most of the time, it's a reference to the Lamb or Old Testament allusions to Christ. Here, it's to Christ. And notice His kingdom, the kingdom of the world. In other words, Christ is taking possession of the earth in order to establish His judgment and it anticipates the second coming. This is a second coming reference. And He will reign forever and ever. And notice again, there's no reference to hail and fire coming out of the sky or mountains being thrown into the sea. But it's all positive. And in fact, we have worship. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. At last, this is what they anticipated. This is what they expected and hoped for is the establishment of the kingdom. And we have kind of a foretaste of it. I think what we have in view here, the seventh trumpet is basically alluding to, I think it's still judgment. They're just not stated. Instead, we're looking at the product of judgment. The product of the judgments of the second coming is that Jesus establishes his kingdom. So the seventh trumpet judgment, I'm uh, interpreting here. It's not stated this way overtly. But I think it goes along with the other trumpet judgments. But we're going to see at the second coming when Christ comes, he comes as judge first. He also comes as king to establish the kingdom. The aspect of his coming that is in view here is the kingship aspect. But when we look at chapter 19, we're going to see both images, judge and king, together. And I think John is just giving the product or the outcome after the judgment of the Messiah and focusing in on the reign or the kingship aspect. Does that make sense? Now, this is interpreting. I'm interpreting right here. So, we have this kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And the 24 elders, as we saw, we saw them in chapters 5 and 6, and they're doing the same thing because now history is being consummated. 24 elders who sit on their thrones, in other words, they're going to rule as well. We saw that in uh, chapters 4 and 5. Fell on their faces and worshiped God. And we have the content saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. And we've already seen references to these phrases. Who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. So things are wrapping up. God is bringing history to a conclusion. God is ending evil. The reign of Christ is on the verge here. So in the middle of all of these judgments and in the the content of the trumpet judgment is actually the anticipation of the product of all of the other judgments. At least that's the way I'm taking it. Make sense? So there's praise. And then verse 18 adds to it. And the nations were enraged... And thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. There's the judgment. There's the judgment that I've been talking about. The time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, that's judgment, the prophets and the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. So that's the trumpet judgment. Does that make sense? So it's looking more at the results 
of judgment or the after effects of judgment than a specific judgment of its own and is looking at the second coming. This is another reason why, remember I mentioned, I see the paralleling particularly at the end. And remember the sixth seal judgment, we had those cataclysmic judgments that come immediately preceding the second coming. Here we have an overt statement of the second coming as the seventh trumpet judgment. When we get to the bowl judgments, we're going to see the seventh bowl judgment is similar to the seal judgments. That's why I've put them in parallel. This is one of the exegetical details that helps me feel comfortable with that viewpoint. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm following? Remember yesterday I gave you the chronology? This is one of the passages that I... And I mentioned that the three sets seem to coincide at the end of the tribulation. Does that make sense? So, we have the second coming, and I think associated with the second coming are the judgments, as we see in uh, verse 18. So, it's an interesting trumpet judgment. This passage, here's another way to apply this. This passage, in a lot of ways, refutes, and you can go into some detail here, refutes liberalism. Liberalism believes in the goodness of man. Not only this passage, but along with the other passages we've already looked at, man is not good in terms of spiritual things. In fact, there's no man, in other words, there's no good in man. Liberalism has the opposite of that. We see the depravity of man in the book of Revelation. Liberalism denies the second coming, and we not only have chapter 19, but you also have the end of chapter 11 that speaks of the second coming. So the seventh trumpet judgment is the second coming of Christ. Liberalism denies the uniqueness of Christ. They view Christ almost like a super moral man. He's just better than all other men. But they deny his uniqueness. This passage emphasized that it's Christ that returns. It's Christ that establishes the kingdom. The kingdoms of the world become that of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. And the deity of Christ is also denied by liberalism. Liberalism uh, overlooks the secularization of the culture. In fact, contributes to it, I believe. So you can use those. So what we have in view here is the kingdom that is eternal, theocratic. It's the kingdom of Israel. There's different, different aspects of the kingdom. There's a mystery form and millennial. We'll come back to these when we talk about the kingdom. Let's move forward here. In your outline point, little a there would be theocracy. I'm using alliteration, verse 15. Thanksgiving, 16 through 18. And then a subdivision there, or exaltation, 16 through 17a. An explanation. And then chapter 11, verse 19. Actually, nine, verse 19 probably better goes with chapter 12. I think we have an unfortunate... This is one of the, one of the few places in all of the Scripture where I kind of dis- disagree with the uh, chapter breakdown. Verse 19 probably goes in chapter 12. That's what it seems to be, yeah. I should mention, based from your question as well, some commentators... Remember the chronology that I laid out? Some of them see the seventh trumpet as containing the bowls. The problem I have is I don't see any evidence exegetically in the text that it does that. So I look at it as separate from the bowls. I think the bowls come later. But there are some very good commentators that see. And the basis for that is the seventh seal 
seems to be composed of the seven trumpets. So it would make sense and logical that the seven, since there's no judgment here, that the seventh trumpet would contain the seven bowls. I just don't see any exegetical details from that. So I think you're stretching a little bit your conclusion there. But there are some some commentators that hold that view. So be aware of that. I don't think Walvard does. I don't remember what he does there. can't remember. Okay, verse 19, going with chapter 12. Let's read it. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, keep track of where we're at in terms of the narrative and in terms of the visions. The the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open. So there's a, a very definite heavenly counterpart to any temple on earth was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Now again, both words there is naas, which is the holy of holies. So the temple is open. The holy of holies is open. That's where the ark of the covenant was contained. And the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning again. Lots of sounds and sights, lights and lightning and sounds, and more peals of thunder, and again, another earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So lots of activity. Now, all of these are associated with judgment, or impending judgment. And it kind of sets the stage for verse 1 of chapter 12. In other words, what's happening in heaven almost is preparing the reader Because in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, same context, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Okay, where are we? Well, beginning with that verse 19, in terms of 1 through 14, we're in this period, this long period, chapters 4 through 18. Tribulation from Jesus Christ, same time frame. We've just completed the trumpet judgments, chapter 8 through 11, at least through verse 18. Beginning in 12, and you can throw verse 19 in there, of chapter 11. Now we're going to have a heavenly explanation. This is like another interlude. A break from the chronology. A break from the sequence of events. Now we're going to have explanation about primarily personages. And in fact, chapter 12, I call the uh, the main characters, 12 and 13, the main characters of the, the tribulation. So on your outline, you have the uh, heavenly explanation, which begins with the main characters, chapters 12 and 13. Now, in some cases, these are individuals, and in some cases, it's groups of individuals, but it seems to chronicle different characters. The main players, you might say. These are the main players that are acting out during these events that are sequential and primarily surrounding judgments. At least that's the way I see this subdivision. A heavenly explanation centering first on the main characters. Verses 1 and 2 is a woman. By the way, the best, I think the best way to view these, these are little pictures. Not necessarily in any chronology. In fact, we'll see that uh, when we look at some of the details. 
imagine, this is the way I'm trying to piece together all of these little glimpses that were given. It's, it's almost like we have a, you know, maybe in your closet you have a shoebox full of photographs that you, you know, some of them you put in albums and you've got them all organized real nice and neatly, but you haven't finished your project and you still have a bunch of photographs in this, this box, okay? And in the box you have photographs of children and uh, you have photograph ants. You have all of these different photographs in this box. They're just thrown in there because someday you're going to get back and finish organizing them and put them nice and neat in chronological order in the album. That's something like what we have here. God is going to give us these little glimpses. We pull out a photograph. Oh, okay. Uh, this is Johnny or whoever your son is at age three. You pull out another one. Oh, okay. This is before he was born. This photograph. Pull out another one. Oh, okay. He's off to college in this photograph. Pull out another one. Oh, okay. This is a different, you know, this is the aunts and uncles. And that seems to be kind of the way this, this is disorganized, I guess, or unorganized. There's not a chronology here. It's just little pictures, little glimpses of these personages. Just like you would pull out of the box a photograph. So the first set of photographs are of this woman. A great sign appeared. Now what does that tell us? A great sign. We saw that word, Samion, in chapter 1. What's Exegetically, what is this telling us? Right. In other words, he's saying, okay, this is a sign. Uh, you could substitute the word, this is a symbol. In other words, it stands for something else. He saw a woman, but he also recognized that this is not a specific woman, but it's a symbol of something. We're going to see another, a second sign of something else as we move further. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and she's clothed with the sun and the moon and under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. So put that imagery in your thinking and you might see what John has in mind. So we have the word Samian, just like you would see a sign. Signs point to something else, particularly directional signs. The significance of the sign is they want you to go in that direction. In other words, put your thinking in this direction. This is a sign, a woman that's pointing to something else. Uh, usually in the book of Revelation, it's a sign or symbol, and that's the clue that we are given consistently. In this case, a woman is a symbol of something. So the uh, task is to try to find out who the woman represents. So what does the symbolism refer to? There's different views. I won't give you all of them. Again, just real quickly, Christian science would have who as the woman. In other words, the Bible predicts Mary Baker. <laughs> yeah, that's their viewpoint. You have to get something in the Bible to kind of support your false doctrine. So Revelation chapter 12 is Mary Baker Eddy. She's this woman. The stars, I can't remember what they mean. They represent something else. Maybe her disciples, I, I can't remember. This is the Roman Catholic viewpoint. And again, you have to find support that helps your doctrine. Jerusalem is a common, in other words, a picture of Jerusalem. Uh, that's getting closer. Again, a lot of the commentators inject the church. This is the church. The woman represents the church. 
So all of those commentators that see the church during tribulation, this is one of the passages they would use to support, supposedly support that viewpoint. But what you're doing is reading a lot of theology into the text. It is a symbol, but it's not the church. Remember in our introduction, I mentioned that in interpreting symbols, either the text will give you an interpretation or oftentimes you can find clues to the interpretation in the Old Testament or in some cases there are some symbols that are used that uh, an awareness of the culture of the day helps us to understand the meaning of the symbol. But the bottom line is we do not have the liberty or the flexibility to impose a meaning on these symbols. We do everything that we can to try to what? To interpret a symbol. What do we try to do? What's the bottom line, in other words, in interpreting a symbol? Any suggestions? Bottom line. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, and specifically, what did John intend in recording this or the author behind John you always look at the author's intent that is the interpretation remember I used uh, mathematical formulas and scientific formulas Uh, you can't make them mean what you want them to mean they have a meaning our task is to figure out what did the author of those mathematical symbols mean? Uh, E equals MC squared. What did Einstein mean by E? Remember that thing, that exercise? Same here. What did John intend? If he doesn't interpret it overtly here, are there clues somewhere else? The imagery is very similar to the uh, visions that Joseph saw in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Remember, he saw two visions. One of them was similar to this one. That's probably the background of this passage. And if so, then Joseph envisioned in the future Israel. And this is what kind of eschatology is not the church's eschatology. All of this is Jewish eschatology. So there's a lot of passages that support a Jewish relationship or the nation of Israel. So I think the woman is a symbol of Israel. We know the main purpose of this period of time called the tribulation is bringing Israel to glory, bringing Israel to restoration. So one of the main characters of the Great Tribulation is the nation of Israel, symbolized by by this woman. So we have the woman. We have more detail here. So we have a picture of this woman clothed with the sun and the moon, so a glorious picture, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. That, obviously, if the woman is Israel, the 12 stars are what? And here's an example of aster, the Greek word aster, which is translated star. Here's, and this is the example that I used when I told you that sometimes it refers to personages. So these are probably whom? Either the 12 tribes or the 12 patriarchs, or maybe both. Okay? And then verse 2 She was with child, in other words, she's pregnant, and she cried out, being in labor, so she's on the the verge of uh, giving birth, and in pain to give birth. Now, if this is an image of the woman, what is this child? It's not Mary, but (laughs) Israel, although Mary was the 
individual within Israel that gave birth to someone, I think that person is Jesus Christ. And we'll see more details because we'll talk about that in a moment. But she's pregnant, so that's part of the imagery and about to give birth in pain and very much pain because she's crying out. And then in verse 3, we have another personage and another sign. So we have a sign again. This one also is in heaven. So we're going to have a second personage that's going to be involved here. And behold, a great red dragon. So we have a description. He's great. So there's there's a probably power and greatness to him. He's going to be very prominent during this period of time. He's red, which alludes probably to other imagery related to this personage. And he's pictured as a dragon. In other words, a, a scary creature. A creature that has the capability of doing a lot of damage. A creature that was very, very much feared in ancient times. In fact, there's a lot of legends and allusions, even allusions in the Bible of dragons, which are probably allusions to dinosaurs in ancient times. There were probably dinosaurs after the flood, and there's memory of them. I think Job describes not only a particular, in fact, more than one dinosaur. He identifies one. The translators give the name Behemoth, and that's probably an unfortunate name. But in chapter 40 of Job, he's probably describing a dinosaur. And in 41, he identifies Leviathan, and that's a theme throughout the Old Testament. Leviathan and Rahab, there seem to be two characters that are like dragon-like characters of ancient times. So people were familiar with these fearful creatures. And that's the symbolism and the, and the imagery behind this personage here. So that's the description in verse 3. He's a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now, when we get to chapter 17, this is going to be explicitly explained to us. But before we get there, let me just kind of jump ahead. Seven heads in that context and in other contexts. This comes out of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. The seven heads are pictures of nations or empires or authorities. Ten horns. Horns are also related to to nations or powers. And on his head were seven diadems. And in this case, these are crowns, but these are crowns of royalty. What is in view here are nations that will make up an empire. And we'll see a lot more of this as we move further in. Let's not kind of take time here for the, for the sake of moving on. We'll come back to this concept, particular chapter 17. It'll be made clear. We'll see these seven heads and ten horns once again later on. What's more important here is verse 4. Again, he pulls out of the shoebox or wherever you have these photographs. And what he sees is this image of a dragon that may look something like the picture there. He pulls out another picture, and now what does he see in verse 4? And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. So he has a different image there. And again, there's austere. And remember I used this verse to indicate that that word can be used in a non-literal sense. This is the context. John is talking about a sign which tells us this is non-literal. It's a sign that represents something else. So this dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. These are not literal stars. 
These are the probably the angels that fell when Satan fell. And if that's not clear enough, it's going to at least identify the dragon very clearly. So the stars probably are a picture of demonic spirits, the angels that fell. Tells us specifically a third of them. We don't know the uh, total number, but we see angels in some context that are innumerable. So millions of them. Whatever the number is, a third of them were swept from heaven. And then and it says in verse 4, now we have another, pull another photograph out of your scattered photos in your shoebox there. We have another image, and the dragon stood before the woman. So you have a photograph of a dragon and a woman together standing before the woman who is about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her. So the dragon has his mouth open waiting for the delivery of the baby. He's going to devour her. So that image is given to us. In that context, we have a long history of both these two characters. And if you think back, all the way going back to the garden, it talks about the seed of the woman and the seed of whom? The seed of the serpent and enmity. In other words, there's always going to be this struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's the history of the Old Testament. The dragon has continually and throughout Old Testament history, beginning in Genesis 3, beginning with the fall, has had the woman under attack. There are not a lot of references to the woman, but the woman here, the woman ultimately is going to give birth. In other words, eventually the woman or Eve, obviously she's the mother of all, People, but there's a specific seed that the New Testament interprets that's going to come from the woman that'll fulfill the Genesis 3.15 passage. But throughout the history, there's been a, this dragon who is related to the serpent. We'll see that in uh, verse 9 in a moment here. The, the dragon has been attempting to devour the uh, child that the woman is going to bear. So let's take a look at this in verse... Five, And now this is going to get us into who this individual is. And she gave birth to a son, a male child. And it tells us who he is. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is the child? I don't, I don't think there's any question about it. The child is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. So... The woman is a major player. Israel is a major player during the Great Tribulation. This dragon, we haven't got to verse 9 yet, but uh, it'll tell us who the dragon is. The dragon is going to have a major part in this period of time. In fact, he will be used as an instrument of God to affect the ultimate things that God is going to accomplish. There's going to be a third major character. We've already seen the Lamb over and over. These judgments ultimately come through the Lamb, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, again, it's not like a sequence here. She gave birth to a son. What is that? I think I have... Well, verse 4 is the downfall. This is one of the photographs of the dragon. And then I have uh, what he's determined to do, using D as my alliteration there. Uh, His determination is to destroy or to devour the woman. Satan's attacks. This is where I'm at. 
Skip to verse 9, just to make clear. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is the dragon? We have an interpretation here. So there's no question about this one. The woman you might be able to debate, but I think there's enough exegetical information to conclude that the woman is Israel. But the great dragon, there's no question. Well, if the woman is Israel, then it makes a lot of sense. And in fact, verse 5 interprets the uh, son as the one that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's Messiah. So that one is fairly clear. And uh, verse 9, the dragon is crystal clear. The dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole earth. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So you don't have to search around as to what the interpretation of that sign is. Right there in the context we have it. Well, just kind of a survey here of Satan's attacks. In fact, why don't we save this for the break afterwards because I want to spend a little bit more time than what we have. So why don't we go ahead and take our noon break and we'll come back and start at this point.